in a spooky way. Yeah, in a spooky way. Spooktacular. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics and neglected issues in bioethics, healthcare, medicine, and society. Basically anything that we, your hosts, find interesting. I'm Tyler Gibb in beautiful Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm Devin Stahl in the slightly less beautiful Waco, Texas. Hey, wait a minute, Tyler. Did you mess with my script? Tyler, welcome back to our spooky Halloween episode. That's quite the noise you're able to make. I'm quite talented with my noises. Thank you. Um, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, what are we talking about today? We're talking about spooky Halloween things again with... With... Darian. Darian Golden Stall. No relation. Just kidding. She's my sister. <laughs> All right, Devin, I got a question for you to start. Okay, shoot. So Darian's going to be telling us spooky stories again about anatomy and bodies and weird things that happen with bodies. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what is your favorite part of the body? Like the body in general or my body or someone's specifics body? Uh, I'm going to let you answer that however you feel comfortable. (laughs) I mean, the whole question makes me pretty uncomfortable. So I'm going to try to interpret it in the least uncomfortable way possible. Okay. I'm imagining I'm back in the gross anatomy lab and I'm looking at cadavers. And what am I looking for? Maybe like the small intestine. It's a very interesting part of the innards of our body. Is that a weird answer? Kind of. It's like (laughs) slimy and smells bad. Well, cadavers smell bad altogether. That's true. Do you think the small intestine smells worse than other parts of the body? I think so. Oh. Don't you? (laughs) I I haven't spent a ton of time in the anatomy lab. I ran a class actually between med students and art students, and they all took part in this exercise where they were drawing the body and the artists were teaching the medical students what they look for when they're drawing. And the medical students were teaching the art students what they were looking for when they do gross anatomy. And so they were comparing the different gazes, the artist gaze versus the medical gaze that each employs when they're doing their work. And at the end, we had this big art installation. Wow. I I don't know how we got on that tangent, but that was a really cool thing I, I've done in the past. <laughs> that does sound really cool. I'd like to do that. <laughs> uh, Tyler, why have you, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's normal for a bioethicist to be in the gross anatomy lab. Why have you been there? Um, I've just been able to go and like watch. Mm-hmm. I've never had to like cut anything. It actually, it kind of grosses me out. I think the human body is kind of gross. Um, I was able to go up and watch a brain dissection. Oh, wow. Once. That was pretty gross. They like uh, took the whole brain. Well, they had the whole brain like prepared and they like did slices of it Mm -hmm. in order to like look at the interior anatomy of it. It was pretty nasty. (laughs) I almost passed out. Ah, like just from the sight of it? Yeah. And then I started thinking about it too much about, man, this is like somebody's brain. You got to detach. Yeah, I wasn't able to depersonalize it. 
in a way that was useful. And I got like wobbly and had to sit down. Oh, wow. One of those. The students were super impressed by that. I I bet that got you a lot of street cred with the med (laughs) students. (laughs) Yeah. And the anatomy department, the pathologists were not impressed with my fortitude. My guess is you didn't get a ton of invitations back. Uh, No, zero, actually. I haven't been able to be back yet. Well, today we're going to be talking anatomy, spooky ways to display bodies, and Darian's going to give us a whole historical lesson on the ways in which people have done that, at least historically. (laughs) Today... In our special Halloween episode, we are pleased to be joined by Darian Goldenstall, artist, sister, and postdoc at the University of Northern British Columbia. Welcome, Darian. Hello, Devin and Tyler. It's great (laughs) to be back on Bioethics for the People. Thank you for having me twice. Your only repeat guest. It's because I'm so special. You're very, very special. It's a special Halloween episode with a very special guest. That's right. (laughs) And I have a doozy of a a little case study for us to talk about ethics and anatomy and art, my three favorite things. So if you will recall last year, I brought you a creepy tale about a man whose skin was turned into the cover of a book. And this year I have maybe an even creepier tale. Yeah, let's get started. So Devin and Tyler, imagine if you will, that you're walking into the warm glow of an old timey public gallery That's just wood, ochres, there's elegant display cabinets and pedestals, and it's very crowded. Everyone there is loving it and having a good time. There is a central sculpture that catches your eye. Everybody's crowded around it. And as you walk closer to it, it looks kind of like an underwater diorama. There's branching corals, stalks of seaweed, a mix of smooth and rough stones bouldering up the center of the sculpture. And in this watery landscape, there are tiny little human skeleton sculptures who are delightfully playing music together. Cute. Very cute. One has a little violin, another one maybe some kind of stand-up bass, and a third one is conducting the other two, generally having a good time. It sounds like a great time. It's a great time. It's a party. One of them has like a feather in her hair and there's a, another one up front that's kind of lounging, maybe had one too, uh, too many drinks. It sounds delightful. Well, Devin and Tyler, look a little closer. That's not coral, but human veins that have been injected with wax and stood up straight here. Those are not seaweeds, but arteries. And those stones bouldering up the center, well, those are gallstones and bladder stones. And that delightful curly Q base is actually a human digestive tract. And those fanciful little skeleton sculptures, 
those are actual articulated skeletons of human infants and fetuses. Ugh. How do you feel about that? Not great. That's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's like a horror show, Darian. Is that for real? Uh, this is for real. And let me tell you a bit more about what you're looking at here. You are in an exhibition of the Cabinet of Curiosities constructed by the ultra-famous anatomist, surgeon, and obstetrician Frederick Reusch in the early 1700s. Now, Reusch is Dutch. Figures. Yeah, we're, huh, need I say more? <laughs> <laughs> he took a lot of inspiration for these sculptures from his Baroque painter contemporaries. And it was actually quite common during this time period for anatomists to also be artists so that they could document their observations of the human body. But I think we can say that Reusch took this to a whole nother level beyond accurately documenting what he observed on his dissection table because he wanted these specimens to become works of art. So he used the textures he found within the human bodies of tissues to mimic lush landscapes. He would arrange the little skeletons to metaphorically represent philosophy, the divine, and the fleeting nature of life itself. And it was also a kind of popular genre of art. A lot of the artwork in this time period contained memento more which is Latin for remember that you will die. <laughs> <laughs> Think of like those old portraits uh, that kind of cliche a person with their hand on top of a skull, uh, that sort of thing only taken to a very extreme in this case. And just in case you did not entirely get the message here, there were also delightful little captions underneath of these sculptures uh, that would say something like, no head, however strong, escapes cruel death. And even in death, I am still attractive. Hmm. So bringing a little bit of humor into this very deathly art. It's not very subtle. Not very subtle at all. And Death might seem like a real downer uh, to be reminded of all the time in art, but we have to remember that sensibilities around death were very different from today. People lived much shorter lives, funerary rites were conducted in the home, childbirth had high mortality rates, and death was more of a part of everyday life. So tableau like Roisha's were meant to make death less scary by making them entertaining and even humorous, you know, with dead baby parts. Not not funny, not funny, Royce. <laughs> I think I miss, I'm missing the humor here. Well, you know, his point was, and he's, he's quoted in saying, I do it all to allay the distaste of people who are naturally inclined to be dismayed by the sight of corpses. Ah, sounds like Tyler. So maybe, Tyler, you would have done better in the anatomy lab if they had been more whimsically uh, displayed for you. <laughs> that's right. I, I, that's absolutely true. If they were posed whimsically, I wouldn't have uh, almost fainted. 
looking at the brains, <laughs> brains. Was that your first exposure to seeing anatomy? Uh, yeah, I think it was. It was um, pretty gross. That's why they call it gross anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But um, so so your reaction was to almost faint, be really grossed out. But I can tell you that the people who observed this artwork loved it. Everyone loved it. All of the accounts uh, for this exhibition were overwhelmingly positive. And in fact, the only kind of criticism surrounding this exhibition were for from other anatomists who may have just been jealous of Roish's popularity and his amazing preservation techniques, which were very, very good. Hey, are you like a Roish spokesperson? This sounds very uh, one-sided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, well, some fa- there's some fangirling going on that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I think so. They were just jealous of how great he was. <laughs> Not only was he a great anatomist and a sculptor, but he was beautiful to boot. (laughs) Even in death, he would have been attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, he, he was also a thinker and an inventor. So the reason why everyone was so blown away by these tableaux was because he was able to get the teeny tiniest little details of the human body to become sculptural. So at first, Roish was inserting very thinly pulled glass tubes and uh, kind of socking them into arteries in order to keep them upright for display. He then graduated to injecting molten beeswax and dyes into arteries, which was pretty standard for the day. Sure, sure. Sure, sure. As, as one does. Mm-hmm. And the real innovation came from a secret combination of waxes and fish gelatin, which was the real kicker here, injected into the veins and arteries. And this would stay molten for much longer than regular waxes. So they were able to get into even the smallest crevices of capillaries and kind of keep their shape. He would then dunk the whole thing in formaldehyde in order to halt decay. And that is how he kind of brought this technology invention into the creation of his art. Sounds fishy to me. Devin, coming in, coming in with the jokes today. (laughs) Well, it's a hilarious topic. What can I say? Yeah, this is what I wanted to get into with you both. These are incredibly artistic and innovative, but I have a feeling that if someone were to show up at a gallery exhibition wanting to install their artwork today, and it was made out of actual human fetuses, that that person would get arrested (laughs) and probably have a spinoff of podcasts for decades. Mm-hmm. which I would absolutely subscribe to. <laughs> so our tastes around what is ethical and how to display human bodies has really changed. So I wanted to ask you both, if there was an anatomist who wanted to engage the public, uh, how would they do that today? What examples have you seen maybe? 
I went to see an exhibit that was touring. I, it may still be touring, I, I guess, called Body World. But basically, it was the same thing where it was these different, I don't know if it was intended to be artistic or scientific or some combination of the two. But it was these bodies that were posed and preserved in really interesting ways. It was super creepy. Yeah, I've actually, I've, so I've never seen Body Worlds, although I used to teach on it. So it, it never came through and I also felt very uncomfortable about it. So maybe that says something about my tastes or my ethics. But I mean, typically, so we're doing like textbooks in med schools, um, then we'll do cadaver lab. But in both of those, the idea is not to be artistic. So body worlds is so interesting because they are a little more artistic, right? Like they're displayed in a way that's supposed to be more aesthetically pleasing. And because they're injected um, or plastinated in the way that they are, they don't smell like a cadaver lab would. They're injected with certain dyes so that thing, the colors pop, so they're more aesthetically pleasing to the eye. So it kind of like, in some ways, crowds out the reminder of death. It's hard to even remember. I, I've heard some people say it's hard to remember that these are real bodies because they look so plastic. And I would point out a huge difference in what you're saying between, say, medical textbooks and the anatomy lab and body worlds is that one is for the public mm -hmm. and the other is much more for medical learners. Obviously, we give physicians all sorts of privileges and access to bodies that we would never give the general public because they're professionals and they're looking for something particular. So when you start doing this in a public space, it becomes... I think in some ways more fraught, not to say the anatomy lab can't be fraught with ethical tensions, but when you're displaying to a public who's not using it purely for educational purposes, I think some sometimes you'd call it something like medutainment, so the merger between entertainment and medical education. I think that at least makes me slightly uncomfortable sometimes. Not because I don't want people to learn, but because if learning is the point, then you don't need a plastinated body riding a skateboard, which is, is one of the famous <laughs> Body Worlds exhibits. Yeah. And I think it's an absolute fair comparison to kind of hold Body Worlds as the contemporary iteration of Horatia's Cabinet of Curiosities. There's so many similarities here between Gunther von Hagen, who's the anatomist and artist behind Body Worlds, and Frederick Reusch both invented anatomical preservation techniques that astounded their audiences and traveling exhibitions. Uh, both are presenting a kind of living anatomy of bodies in action, and they both straddle the sometimes blurry, uncomfortable line between education and entertainment or meducation. And I, I wanted to know if it is educational along with entertaining. What are people actually supposed to be learning from these exhibitions? What is coming to mind here? Or is that a bit kind of overinflating the goals of such exhibitions? I mean, I think you're learning a little bit about what the inside of the body looks like. Of course, it's not a perfect representation because of course, these are cadavers and they're plastinated. So it's not quite like what the inside of my body looks like. But most people have no idea kind of the our inner anatomy. So you're learning a little bit like how big the heart is and where it's placed in the body and the big intestine versus the small intestine. So you're learning just a little bit about anatomy, I guess. And I think with some of those, maybe Tyler, you remember this, 
I thought I remember in Body Worlds, they would display the lungs of somebody who was a smoker and show you what that looked like compared to somebody who was not. They were trying to convince you, I suppose, not to smoke. So there was some cautionary tale there. Is that, do you remember that? I think so. I, I don't, I, it's been a number of years since I, I saw it, but that's my memory is that there were like side by sides of like a liver that was cancerous and a liver that was kind of quote unquote healthy before it died. I also remember that there were some concerns about the way the bodies were procured about possibly they weren't a hundred percent voluntarily donated to this art exhibit, but I could be wrong. I don't remember that. Do you know Darian? Well, I think especially in the earlier iterations of Body Worlds, that was a much bigger concern that had to be worked out. Uh, so this, his exhibition first opened in 1995. Oh, back before we had standards and morals. The 90s were a real unethical decade. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he was a renegade. <laughs> Take anybody's body and turn it plastic and pose it on a skateboard without even asking. Yeah. The old. good old days. The good old days. So where did Royce get his bodies, Darian? I mean, I'm I'm especially concerned with like the bodies of babies. I mean, maybe that's in Body Worlds too. I do seem to remember a picture of like a woman who is pregnant um, and you're seeing sort of like where the fetus would be. But something about like plastinating fetuses and then displaying them as playing a violin just like really unsettles me <laughs> more so than adults. I think that's fair. Roish was a professor of midwifery. And let's throw this out to the audience. Does anyone know what a male midwife might be called? Or if that is a distinction? Because he was one. He educated midwives and helped many babies into the world. And I have to imagine that with high mortality rates during this time for children and mothers, that that is where he got his specimens. Wait, so what is a male midwife called? They're just called male midwives. No, as far as we know. Is it is it like warlocks or something? <laughs> warlocks. <laughs> no, I've been reading some 18th century documents lately because, you know. As one does. As one does. Um, they just call them male midwives, but they do have to throw in the male even when it's like, I was reading a story about John Howard, the male midwife, just in case you thought maybe he was female. There you go. So he was a male midwife, and that is how he was able to procure uh, so many baby parts for his tableau. Yeah. So I feel and hear and see you're cringing, Devin. <laughs> <laughs> but considering the times... Is Reich crossing bounds of ethics or are we being too uptight? Uh, I don't know. It's, I think we're being too uptight. That's the position I'm going to take. <laughs> I'll take the opposing side and say, absolutely not. I'm a very open-minded person. And there's something about fetuses playing violins and upright basses that still bothers me. So I would say that there has been an arc of sensibilities when it comes to how anatomy is published and made visible to the public. It was quite fanciful starting in the mid to late Renaissance, which was the time period of Reich, where the distinctions between science, art, and medicine were much less defined. 
it was only right that anatomy drawings also displayed philosophical concepts and merged aesthetics with educational content. These illustrated bodies were alive, moving, set within landscapes, and even presented as holy figures. The representations of the anatomy moved to more austere uh, kind of representations on the white page, kind of floating there, bloodless, without any context at all, think Gray's anatomy. And the body is more or less illustrated as dead, a dissected still life. And it stayed that way, I think one could argue, until Body Worlds, first exhibited in 1995. And like Hagen, Roish's exhibitions were meant to hook you with the spectacle and teach you something while you were there. Mm, that's how I teach too. Yeah. <laughs> Roish definitely added things to these tableaus that were not strictly anatomical, like feathers and doilies. He added captions of what the skeletons might be thinking. Oh, geez. <laughs> and they were really exciting for the people. I mean, they didn't have Squid Game. <laughs> uh, so this must have been truly thrilling. <laughs> Nothing is more thrilling than a doily. <laughs> Particularly a fetus plasticized wearing a doily. Oh, the height of entertainment. <laughs> but on the other hand, while you were there enthralled in the beauty of these different parts, he labeled each of them. So they had adjoining list of descriptions that you were meant to kind of learn from while being enthralled with the art itself. And it's this mix of learning and entertainment that really struck a chord with the public. In fact, in 1717, the entire exhibition was purchased by Peter the Great of Russia, and he took the entire collection back to Russia and opened up the first public exhibition called the St. Petersburg Kunstkammer to educate his constituents and also his royal physicians. But sadly, or maybe not so sadly, if you hated this talk of these sculptures, um, none of them survive to this day. Oh, I know they were man. all destroyed or maybe deteriorated over the centuries. So the only kind of recording that we have of these tableau are the incredibly detailed illustrated prints that people were able to capture while they were still on display. And this is the image that we will share with you, the listening audience, on the Bioethics for the People website. So you can see the glory of Roish's artwork for yourself. We'll see. We'll, we'll make that editorial call. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a little presumptuous, Darian. Tell us what's going to be on our website. Okay, But no, we'll probably put that on the website. Yeah, okay. we'll put it up. It might already be there, actually. So how is this different than just like taxidermy? So my dad likes to go and kill animals and plasticize them and put them all over the walls of my mom's house. Yeah. Devin? Um, well, they're human beings and not non-human animals. Um, some people would find taxidermy pretty equally gross, I suppose. I don't know. I mean, there's something about looking at a dead human that does strike me as different. But again, maybe I'm just closed-minded. And Royce thought he was doing a double good here. 
exposing viewers to thought-provoking art and teaching them about the body. But you're thinking, Devin, maybe this went a little too far. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's really hard to place your finger on like what's too far, I suppose. But there's something about like positioning fetuses doing entertaining things that, of course, a fetus could never do that does make it more of an entertaining spectacle than a anatomy lesson. So where where do you draw the line? This sounds more like entertainment than education. What were they supposed to be learning? Except that death is hilarious. <laughs> Haven't there been recent art exhibits where people have made like the medium they were using were like their own bodily fluids? Is that something that I'm I'm fabricating? Do you does this ring a bell? I'm sure most MFA students have done this. <laughs> okay, Darian, you have you so done gross. this? <laughs> have you made art out of your bodily fluids? I can't say I haven't not thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> but have you done it? I don't think I've done it. Okay. Thinking back, no. <laughs> well, I'm sure some people think it's quite edgy. Was Royce considered edgy? Or was this kind of like, I mean, it sounds like everyone was very accepting. It doesn't sound like he got a lot of pushback. That's right. And there's even, this exhibition was really, really popular. Like, I cannot overstate this. Balzac wrote a character in one of his novels that went to Royce's exhibition and loved it. That's how popular this exhibition was. If Balzac said so, then it must be true. It was good. <laughs> I guess it was good. And in comparison to Royce's time, our culture's attitudes towards death, I would say, have swung in the very far opposite direction. We are completely youth obsessed and techie bros are trying to live forever. So perhaps some more everyday exposure to themes like aging and death would actually be okay and maybe even develop a healthy attitude towards these topics. And I think that is what Royce was trying to get at. Let's not be so afraid of aging and death, turn it into art. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the death I see, the aging not so much, since at least what you're describing is a bunch of babies and fetuses. He seems pretty youth obsessed. Nothing more youth obsessed and than babies. a fetus. And fetus. Yeah, than babies. Yeah. It's hard to get younger than a fetus. Too true. Yeah, but I mean, I, I do think that there's something to the idea that we should become more comfortable with death. I mean, I think in the work that Tyler and I do, we can just see how scared people are. I don't know that you'll ever get dying people to not be afraid of death. I think that that's just part of our nature. But at the same time, the idea that we don't want to talk about it, that we don't want to fill out advanced directives, the idea that we don't want to like tell our loved ones what we would want at the end of life, I think actually has really negative repercussions on dying people. And if maybe if we were more comfortable talking about death, people would die in less uh, like sort of technologically aggressive ways. I don't know. What do you think, Tyler? Yeah, I, th I think that's one of the goals of advanced care planning is to kind of demystify or make it less scary, trying to give people a little bit more control over what their final few days will look like. But I think it's still super creepy to make people into art <laughs> i also think it's i also think it's pretty creepy to do um taxidermy too but yeah i don't i don't like taxidermy either even the little mice 
that are playing tiny violins. I've never seen that. Is that a thing that you do as an artist? You know, there's a gopher museum in rural Alberta that has this. Ah, they're all playing violins? Uh, they're all doing all sorts of things. It's a whole museum of gopher taxidermy. I think it's called the Gopher Museum, and they're pretty cute. <laughs> <laughs> Living their human lives. <laughs> well, Darian, I mean, so you are an artist whose work centers on medicine and the patient experience. What do you think of all of this? You know, I think artists can get away with a lot when it comes to labeling things art instead of medical research. I've been in conferences where the whole, you know, medical part of collaborations between art and medicine had to go through months and months of ethics clearance and ethics training, whereas the artist can just step right in and do whatever their role was in part of the collaboration without any kind of institutional oversight or approval. And I, that makes me really uncomfortable. I think if we're working with patients, living people or deceased people, that that still requires a hefty amount of ethics. It should anyway. I don't think artists should be immune from this kind of check or ethical oversight. That's my opinion. I know many artists that think the exact opposite. It's interesting that if you are doing research on cadavers, it's not considered human subjects research and therefore not regulated or there's no oversight from an institutional review board or an IRB. Right, but you, there's still rules about what you can and cannot do with a cadaver. Sure, there are rules of uh, propriety. Yeah, you can't sell body parts and, you know, it, or even if somebody consented, there's all sorts of indecent acts on a corpse that would be illegal. I don't know if I want to keep that in the pot or not, but... In most states. Yeah. Well, my students often say, well, what do I care? I'm dead. And But people do care what happens to their bodies even after their death, just because it's gross. Yeah. I, I use that same example all the time, too, particularly when we're talking about organ donation, because people are like, oh, once I'm dead, you can do whatever you want with my body. Like, that's not really true. I can think of some examples of things you would not want people to do with your body, even if you were dead. Yeah, we'll leave that up to the listener's imagination. Well, could someone sign their body away to be art to just anyone? I think they could, but I think there's also rules about disposal and possession of body parts, right? Yeah, so it would be on the artists to make sure that they were following the proper regulations and laws about how to handle, dispose of human body parts. I think human bodies are considered biological waste, right? And so there's certain rules about how you would, like you said, handle and disp dispose of them. Yeah. And, and don't ask me where I know this from, but you can't just like drive a dead body across state lines. That was my next question. <laughs> I feel like we have to ask how you know this. <laughs> don't ask. Don't ask. It's spooky. Ooh, I hope you enjoyed this creepy tale. That was so good. So good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Darian. That was another good one. Welcome. <laughs> For 
For more information about today's episode, show notes, and links to articles and topics discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstall for all the podcast-related artwork and Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here. Darian, you're our only repeat guest ever. I'm honored, but also not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obviously the best. You want me on twice. Oh, I thought you meant just because we are so terrible, no one would ever come on our podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that now. I hear it. <laughs> Sorry. That's not what I meant. <laughs>